So we are going to start a new series today. It's called The Elephant in the Room. Uh, now, if you're familiar with that expression, it's an it's expression going back for centuries, and it's basically an expression that says that there's a problem that everybody knows about, but nobody wants to talk about. Uh, and I, I don't know about your family of origin. Yesterday at the barbecue, some people were talking, and if you aren't aware of this, any conversation that I hear you have is always room for, ser- for sermon illustrations. If it's public conversations, you know that. So just, just letting you know. But there was a conversation between two people, and they were talking about their families of origin that they said that they came from families that they just talked about everything. I mean, that there was nothing that was uh, off limits, that they, 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 they sat down and, and talked everything out. And, and I told them how strange that was for me because I grew up in a family of origin that we talked about nothing. Uh, we buried our head to every problem that you could possibly have. And so, so we, we very much didn't talk about things. And sometimes I think in the church, we do that. Um, it's at least been my experience that the elephant in the room in most church families is money. Uh, we just don't want to talk about it. Uh, and it may surprise you to know that pastors, at least this one, uh, doesn't like to talk about it either. Um, it, it, in fact, my first church, I mean, with the church that I started for two years, I never talked about money, never mentioned money. never. Other than taking an offering, I never did a sermon about it. And you'd be going, oh, I wish it had been two years now. But, but I, I learned from that experience because... As a pastor, if, if, I, if I found out that everybody in this church was struggling in prayer life, it wouldn't surprise you to think that as a pastor that I would come up very quickly with a sermon series on prayer. It's a spiritual discipline. It's how we grow in our relationship with God. If, if nobody in this church wanted to serve the people in the community, I would very quickly come up with a sermon series about serving and commitment and because it's a spiritual discipline. It's how we grow in our faith with God. Generosity is a way that we grow in our relationship with God. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks um, talking about generosity, the fears that we have, and, and, and ways to think about money uh, and, and, and generosity in general. Uh, how many of you were, have grown up, how many of you, somebody sat down with you and taught you about the biblical understanding of money and giving and generosity and interest and, and all of that. How many, if somebody sat down and actually taught you the biblical understanding of that? Raise your hand. Okay. That, that's actually really good that a few of you have had that instruction. I had an 11th grade civics class that taught me how to balance a checkbook. That is my extent of somebody sitting and teaching me about money. Um, no one ever sat down and taught me giving and generosity and interest and, and all of those things, debt ratio. No one ever gave me any instruction whatsoever. We typically just learn about money from the school of hard knocks. You either grow up without money and you go, oh, I don't like that, I want to have money one day. Or you grow up with money and you go, oh, I like that, I don't want to lose that. Uh, and so that's kind of typically our instruction, that's our understanding. And so what I want us to spend some time over the next four weeks is really looking at biblical understanding of money, why we have it, what do we do with it, what's the resource and that God uses it for. Um, most of the time we find ourselves in kind of two camps. You either you, you say, say, okay, well, somebody has money and they have a lot of money, they should take care of me. 
And you can say that's the government. You can say that's the church. You can say that's your parents. Uh, you can say that's your spouse. You can say that's your children. But somebody over here has a resource, and they need to give it to me. I need my share. Or you can say, nobody's going to take care of me, and I'm going to have to take care of myself. So I'm going to have to build my business. I'm going to have to earn my, my way. I'm going to have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Which one of those two ways is the biblical understanding of money? Don't answer. Um, The reality is both of those contradict the biblical understanding of money. There there are elements of both of those philosophies within the biblical understanding, but they both have areas where they contradict the Bible. And so I think it's important for us to start today just what are some things the Bible teaches us about money? So let me share with you one of the, what I believe is one of the greatest teachings of Jesus with regards to, to finances. It says this in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot have a divided heart. The passage where it talks about service, the word doulos in Greek, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a bond servant. It's somebody who completely gives up their will to another person, to another thing. And so Jesus is saying to us, you cannot be submitted to the will of God and to the will of money or to the will of wealth at the same time. Those two concepts contradict each other. They, they, they cannot work together. We have to decide, as followers of Jesus, every single person in this room has to make this decision. We have to decide whether we want to submit our will to God. And we have to decide whether we want to submit our will to God in the area of money. See, we have this idea that Christianity is just some way to escape hell. Uh, that, 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 that's what Christianity is all about. It's all about just the eternal consequence. And we don't realize that what God is asking us to do is to submit our lives to him in this lifetime. We're, we're to allow God to, to change us and we begin to operate with his will rather than our, our own. And that requires submission, that requires change, that requires hard work, and that's the reason we don't like it. We would rather not submit than to submit. But what God is calling us to do is to submit our will to him. Now, how do we know the will of God? Can, you, can we just walk outside and see the will of God? Well, no, because everything that happens in this world, I hope you know that everything that happens in this world is not the will of God. So how do we know the will of God? Well, my argument to you is Scripture. Scripture is going to teach us, if you study Scripture, Scripture is going to teach us what the will of God is. Give you an example. I, I had it when I, I moved to Georgia when I was six from Kentucky, and um, when I was in eighth grade, I met uh, a friend. His name was Mark, and Mark was my best friend all the way through school. We we played football together. We wrestled together. Uh, we went to middle school together. We went to high school together. And in high school, we became what I would just there's no other term for it but to say he was my party buddy. Um, we. We did things that we shouldn't do um, together. And, and, and we had a very negative influence on each other. So it was, he was one who I couldn't really say no to, and he really couldn't say no to me. So 
when that happens as a party buddy, that's, that's a dangerous place, right? So, but, but Mark and I had this relationship. It was, it was just very dysfunctional with each other. And um, when I went away to college, Mark stayed home, and I would come back, and, and we would get back together, and, and we would party together. Or he would come to the University of Georgia, and we'd party together there. We just, it was just a very dysfunctional relationship. Um, we got married, Claire and I got married, and Mark and his wife got married basically the same year, and um, Claire and I tried to start growing in our faith, tried to start following God, and um, Mark was still this negative influence in my life, and all fairness, I was a negative influence in his life. Um, I told y'all a couple weeks ago that this was kind of where I was praying one day about God, I, I want to change, but I don't see a lot of change. And I talked to my pastor at the time, and, and he brought up a passage of Scripture that we don't typically apply in that kind of relationship, but he used it to kind of show me. And it's a passage in 2 Corinthians where it talks about how you have to, in a marriage relationship, you have, you have to be equally yoked. And, and he suggested that I needed to start thinking about that, about friends, that, that people that I'm going to let influence me and people that I'm going to have uh, as, a, as a confidant, that they need to be people who are equally yoked. They desire the same thing. They, they, they want faith. They want to they put God at the center of their life. And so it, it challenged me to stop and think, maybe I don't need to have Mark's influence in my life. And so I believe that the scripture in this conversation with this pastor helped me to understand that it was the will of God at that point in time of my life for me to end that friendship. He had been my best friend for... I don't know how many years, um, and I basically just ended the friendship because I knew that God needed me or desired for me to do something different. And when you make tough decisions to follow the will of God, it has also been my experience that God will strengthen you. God, God will, will give you a desire to even want his will even more in your life. And I have to tell you today that if I had stayed friends with him, in that kind of relationship, I don't know that we would have stayed married. I don't know that I would have had kids. I don't know that I would have followed God's call into ministry. I can't see that kind of thing. But all I know is that I followed what God's will was for me at that particular time. That's what God calls us to do, to submit to him. And I have to do it on the basis of faith. Now, I will tell you just so you'll know that many, many years later, I went back and restored that friendship when I was stronger in my faith to be able to, to have and develop that friendship again. But we have to learn to let God's will be our will. It's one of the first steps in following Christ. And we have to do that in the area of finances as well. We have to learn how to be obedient. Now let me show you a passage in Mark that kind of works in with this. It, it's a passage in Mark, verses 1. It says, 40, verses 40, 42. It says, a man with a skin disease approached Jesus, fell to his knees and begged, if you want, you can make me clean. Incensed, Jesus reached out his hand, touched him, and said, I do want to be clean. Instantly, the skin disease left him, and he was clean. And you think, okay, this is a strange story about healing that we would tie in with, with money. But, but we have to understand that in this particular man's life, we have to see that he wasn't experiencing God's will in his life, was he? Life doesn't always show us what God's will is. We think sometimes as followers, we believe and we profess in Jesus. And from that day forward, everything that happens to us the rest of the, our life is God's will. But I hate to be the one to disappoint you, but that's not the way that it works. Uh, everything that happens doesn't, is not necessarily God's will for you. 
if you want God's will in your life, what we can learn from the leper is you got to ask for it. You got you gotta, you gotta to seek it. Do you hear what Dwayne, Dwayne prayed for, for me to, to stay strong in seeking God's face? You've got to seek it, and then you've got to submit to it. That's what we see in the leper. That was when he was cleaned and, and he experienced God's will for him. Think about the prayer. If you, ever, if you know the Lord's Prayer, what, what do we say? That we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we praying for? We're praying for God's will to be done. Just praying it implies that it's not guaranteed that God's will is done. We're asking God's will to be done for us. That's where we see the transaction, I mean, the, the, the transformation take place in this man's life. There's so many things that happen in our world that is not God's will. We had the recent story, and, and some of you may have known the people who were involved. There was a, a, a shooting, three people killed in, in, in McDonough. Is that the will of God? Is it the will of God that kids, Pam's going to be going to Kenya, is it the will of God that there are people in Africa who are dying just because they don't have clean water? There was a story on Channel 2 the other night about the sex trade in Atlanta that in, while the 60-minute show was going on, they said 100 kids were sold into sex trade in Atlanta, Georgia. Is that the will of God? No. The story of the leper teaches us that God begins to work when we ask God to work, when we ask for God's will to be in our life. When we submit to God's will, he's not going to bring it on you and compel it to you because that would just make us robots. So God gives us the freedom and he allows us just basically to make dumb decisions. He gives us the freedom to make dumb decisions. But what it teaches me is that when I begin to make those in the areas of my life, that's a byproduct of a divided heart. Because what I've got to do is focus my heart entirely on God. And so when I see some of those dumb decisions in my own life, it helps me to recognize I've got to stop and realize that somehow I've become divided in my heart. Are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to the will of God? Have you submitted to the will of God in the area of money? People tell me, well, I've been doing it for years. I, I go to church and I don't give and, and, and nothing's really ever been a, a problem for me. The way I understand it, God's desire for us is for us to grow closer to him. And God's desire is to show us the fullness of his grace and his mercy. And I believe that God will show us glimpses of that fullness of grace that we sing about. But then there's going to be a time where we're all going to come to a crossroads in our lives. That may be today for you. You may have had it two weeks ago and it may be three, three, three weeks from now. But there's always going to be a time where we come to a crossroads. So do we really believe what we say? Do we really want to submit to the will of God? Do we want to submit in all aspects of our life? Do we want to submit in finances? Folks, if you are not fully submitted to the will of God, it is a byproduct of a divided heart. People will say all the time about, uh, when I got here, first, one of the first few things people told me were that I needed to do something about the money. Folks, I can't do anything about the money. It's not a financial problem. It's a spiritual issue. And that we have to stop and recognize that when we're not submitted to the will of God, it's a divided heart. And you can have a divided heart no matter how much money you make. You don't have to be rich to have a divided heart. So let's think about some of the things that the Bible teaches us. If we can focus our, 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 
our heart and put God at the center. What are some of the things that the Bible teaches us about money? Look at this in Proverbs 14. It says, even their neighbors hate the poor, but many love the wealthy. You think, well, what does that have to do with generosity and giving? Passage teaches us that it is common for us to value people on whether they have money or not. But that's how we make our determination on how we're going to relate to people. And the Bible guards us or tells us to guard against that. We do it without even knowing that we're doing I had to do a funeral a few years ago, and the lady had a, uh, she loved Third Day, if you know any of Third Day songs, and she, she absolutely loved Third Day. And so somebody in the family knew somebody, and so somehow it worked out to where Mac Powell from Third Day came and sang at the funeral. I was officiating part of the service, and it was my opportunity to, to introduce Mac to come up and sing, and so I introduced him, and he came up and sang a song. We got through the funeral, and Latham, my son, came running up to me, and he was so impressed that I got to call Mac Powell by his first name. Uh, that was what he took away from that funeral, was this, that I knew Mac Powell because he loved Third Day at the time. Does that impress us when, when, when people, or, or, does that make a, a determination on how we view, value them or, or view them? If somebody were to be homeless, would you be as equally impressed if I were to say, I know them? They're friends of mine. I know their first name. See, that's a, a sign of a, of a divided heart. It's a byproduct of a divided heart. And when this gets into the church, the Bible tells us it's a bad thing. Listen to what it says in James. James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. So imagine two people walking in the doors right now. One has a gold ring and fine clothes while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? James is telling us that when we treat people differently based on the whether they have money or not, we become evil-minded judges. We don't treat people differently in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't. We don't treat them any different whatsoever. Jesus hates injustice. When we, when we look down on somebody because they don't have money or we resent somebody who does have money, Jesus hates injustice. That's not what we're called to do in, Jesus, in, the, in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. Let me tell you something else that money will do. Money will kill your imagination. Absolutely kill your imagination. Look at what it says in Matthew 6. Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Who among you? By worrying can add a single moment to your life. And it goes on to talk about the lilies of the field and how beautiful they are and, and how God cares for them. And if God loves you, why would God not care for you in the same way? And then it ends that passage when you read that story. It says, and your heavenly father knows your needs. Your heavenly father knows the needs that you have. Every single one of them. They may be different than the needs you want, but your heavenly father knows your needs. Worry is an imagination killer. Worry cannot solve a single problem. You can't get a single answer by worrying. And I'm not saying that we just as Christians kind of need to go blindly, 
into Falala land where we all sing Kubaya. Um, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that, that we have to understand when we're, when, when we're worrying and our worry is focused on money, it's a byproduct of a divided heart. It's a byproduct of a divided heart. The worry comes when you have replaced God from his rightful place. So what else does Jesus teach us about money? Look at what it says in Matthew 25, verse 14. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. In Psalm 24, he says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants too. Psalm 50 goes on to talk about it. It says, Because every forest animal already belongs to me, as do the cattle on a thousand hill. God over and over and over again teaches us that everything is his. The car that you drive to work is God's. The home that you live in is God's. The clothes that you wear are God's. The food that you're going to eat for lunch this afternoon is God's. Everything in this, in this world is God's. Everything the Bible teaches us. Do you believe that? And then the last thing that I would tell you as we end up today is that God has the best plans for your finances. Look at this passage again in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let me tell you something the Bible does not say in this passage. It does not say that you cannot have wealth. It doesn't say that money is a bad thing. It doesn't say you can't have money. It's telling you to guard against letting money have you. That's where you have to to, to, to guard yourself against. When you begin to let money have you, you have to recognize it's a byproduct of a divided heart. God has greater plans than you can ever imagine. Look at what it says in Psalm 35. But let those who want things to be set right for me shout for joy and celebrate. Let them constantly say the Lord is great. God wants his servant to be at peace. God takes pleasure in the best for us. We sang a song, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. God wants to transform us. God has this desire for our best. Unfortunately, we have just grown up outside of the teachings of Jesus with regards to money. We've, we've never been taught what the Bible has to say. And to try to focus it in four weeks is going to be a, is it going to be a hard issue. But often what happens is we get ahead of God. I do. I'll get ahead of God and I, I want a nicer car. And so I'll go buy a nicer car and then I got to pay for that car. And, you know, or, or, I, or I want a bigger TV and I go get a bigger TV. And then I'm like, why did I buy the bigger TV? Uh, we get ahead of God. What we've got to learn how to do is to understand what God has given us money for, what we're to do with it what the resources are for. We have to get to a place in our spiritual journey where we learn to put trust in God for everything, including our money. Not just our money, but including our money. In every aspect of our life, we have to learn how to trust Jesus. Amen? I'm going to show it to you in a different way this morning. A sermon illustration, if you will. We kind of operate, for the most part, many of us, we, 
we look at this as this being our life. And so what we say is, okay, we got to pay our mortgage. We got to have a car payment or two. We got to have utilities. I told everybody at the first service, I'm going to put an extra one in there for my phone because my phone is my largest utility. We've got to uh, go out to eat. Starbucks. Um, we've got, to, or I should say Krispy Kreme. Uh, we, we've got to uh, do our recreation. We've got to uh, pay for our kids' college or school in general. Uh, we have to uh, have our insurance. We want to make sure that we have insurance. We have to do the little extra few things that we do. And maybe at the end, we have a little bit left for savings and a little bit left for God. We give God whatever we have is left over. And that's how we operate. And I think when we think about money, when we learn it over the next four weeks, what I'm hoping that we can begin to realize is what God's asking us to do is to put him first, trust him. We give to God, but you know what? Still have a mortgage. Still got my car payment or two. We have our utilities. Unless God just verbally tells me I'm not giving up my phone. Um, I'll give it up if he tells me to, though. But so we still got to have our utility. I mean, uh, still got to go out to eat. Maybe we don't go as much as we normal, so I'm going to cut out Krispy Kreme. Crazy idea. Um, we're going to still got to put our kids to college or to school. We still have to try to save a little bit. We have a few more expenses that we have to do. And, and, and maybe we just have some miscellaneous things that come up. Oh, we had to buy a refrigerator this month. So if we have to have things around the house that we got to do. We operate with putting God first. And so sometimes we have this idea that our cup is just miraculously going to stay full if we give God first. But I will tell you that there are times at the end of the month we still don't go and get what we need to get. Because we got to wait for the cup to refill. We have to be patient and wait on God. So it's not that God just fills our cup nonstop. But every time that we give, and this is true for me, every time I write a check to the church and put God first, it reminds me that God is an abundant God. God is an infinite God. It reminds me that God is a powerful God. Reminds me that God is a strong God. We forget sometimes that God is infinite. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you that you are a God of infinite resources. Lord, I pray that you can help us to stop today and And look at your word. Everything in this earth is yours. Help us to to recognize that everything that we have is from you. And help us to get to that place that we, we desire to submit to your will in the area of finances. I pray, God, that we can have the courage to put you first. To trust you in everything to make you the the cornerstone of every part of our life, including 
our finances. I realize that that brings great fear. But God, help us to remember you are an abundant God. You are an infinite God. You are a God full of resources that we cannot even imagine today. Help us to call on you for our strength, our grace, our mercy. Work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.